Captain, do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special show. We will return it to you as soon as you are philosophical. Today's episode, The Space Race, Afro-Futurism. Our world made contact with the beyond on April 16, 1976 in Nashville, the opening date of the Earth Tour of Parliament Funkadelic. A breathless audience watched as the mothership descended from on high, lights flashing to the sound of a refrain drawn from a famous spiritual. Swing down, sweet chariot, stop and let me ride. Amidst a cloud of billowing smoke, the door opened to reveal the grooviest of space invaders, Dr. Funkenstein. Swift lippin', ego trippin', and body snatchin', the doctor had brought his clones to preach a new gospel, the gospel of funk. P-funk. Uncut funk. The bomb. Minds, along with the special effects budget, were blown. Dr. Funkenstein, also known as Starchild, and in his earthly form, George Clinton, had already declared on the 1975 Parliament album Mothership Connection, we have returned to claim the pyramids. The P-Funk mythology was futuristic, inspired by science fiction, yet it also looked back to the African past via spirituals all the way to ancient Egypt. If the radio of your mind was tuned to the right signal, you'd get the message. What might seem to be a harmless and humorous fantasy about Funkonauts capable of funkatizing galaxies was in fact an exuberant expression of Africana thought, and one highly relevant to the themes we have been exploring in this podcast. To see this, we need to do a bit of traveling in time rather than space. We must transport ourselves back to the 1950s, when an earlier musician was already exploring some of the same themes as Parliament Funkadelic. When asked about him, George Clinton once said, This boy was definitely out to lunch, same place I eat. In fact, this man was by his own account quite literally out of this world. Biographers tell us that his visitation to planet Earth began in 1914 in Birmingham, Alabama. As a child, he went under the radar by letting himself be known as Sonny Blount, though he broke cover when he refused to fight in World War II, declaring himself a conscientious objector. He denied that killing could be made compatible with true religion, telling the judge, you worship a god of death. When the judge remarked, using a racial epithet, that he had never seen a black man like this before, Sonny Blount replied, and you never will again. Subsequently, he moved to Chicago, where he and a friend began a sort of secret society, a reading group with activist intentions called Thmay Research. Thmay was a name for the goddess Maat, whom we mentioned way back in episode 6. In 1952, Blount would reveal his own true name, Lusania Ra, or in its briefer and more familiar version, Sun Ra. Chicago offered a vibrant cultural scene, one that also produced such figures as Richard Wright and Gwendolyn Brooks. Here, Sun Ra was exposed to the sounds of Africa and the African diaspora, especially from the Caribbean. As a study of this formative setting has said, the resulting music was, in part, an exercise in imaginative geography. His pioneering jazz drew on black culture from across the globe, but Sun Ra's inspiration was not earthbound, according to the man himself. He let it be known that since childhood, he had never been part of this planet. After being abducted by aliens, through a process of transmolecularization, he was brought to Saturn and taught things that could save the Earth, and especially the black race. His music would show the way toward a better future. As he put it much later in 1969, cosmic music is a plane of tomorrow. It is the dimension and the balanced perspective of tomorrow. 
It is the view of the living future of the living tomorrow. Ra's career wasn't the only thing taking off in the 1950s. Sputnik, for instance, launched in 1957. Ra responded by recording tracks with such titles as Bop is a Spaceship Melody, Rocket Number 9 Take Off for the Planet Venus, and There Are Other Worlds They Have Not Told You About. He and his musicians appeared wearing futuristic outfits, something Ra explained by saying, They could wear tuxedos in outer space, but they wear spacesuits, because it's more suitable. So if I'm playing space music, why can't I wear my celestial hats and things like that? The costumes and iconography also alluded to Egyptian imagery, as of course does the very name, Sun Ra, a kind of two-word incantation devoted to the pure solar world from which he said he hailed, since Ra was the ancient Egyptian god of the sun. His band too was known not as an orchestra, but as the orchestra, calling to mind the Ark of the Tabernacle, which as we saw back in episode 8, was brought to Ethiopia, according to the Kebra Nagast. As this rich tapestry of cultural signifiers suggests, Ra was developing an original mythology that, like his music, was an expression of pan-Africanism. He was convinced that this project could represent the salvation of his race, and ultimately, of all humankind. To those who wondered whether liberation might come through political action and not experimental jazz, Sun Ra replied with this reflection on the limitations of mainstream politics. I really prefer mythocracy to democracy. Before history, anything before history is myth. That's where black people are. Reality equals death because everything which is real has a beginning and an end. Myth speaks of the impossible, of immortality, and since everything that's possible has been tried, we need to try the impossible. Ra's belief in the power of art anticipated the black arts movement, which made similarly large claims for the liberatory potential of poetry. In fact, Ra was himself a poet, and Amiri Baraka and Larry Neal included eight of his poems in the key black arts anthology, Black Fire, published in 1968. One poem of his, Music of the Spheres, which is not in the anthology, reads in part, This music is of the outer spheres, of the kingdom of naught, the void, for it is of the unsaid words concerning the things that always are to be. These lines bring us to a distinctive feature of Ra's philosophy, which helps to explain his use of science fictional tropes. Faced with this world and its oppression, he pointed to another world, thus putting the alien in alienation. Ra's thought was not mere escapism, but it was about escape. He offered a space-age updating of the idea of emigration that was so deeply rooted in Africana thought, promoted by Marcus Garvey, but before him by Martin Delaney, and before him John Russworm, and so on. This is why Ra's poetry, promotional materials, and off-the-cuff remarks were so often about negating the world as we find it, the kingdom of naught, which although it is not, yet is, the valoration of myth over reality, of past and future over present, and a yearning for space, a void which is, of course, black. A remarkable distillation of Ra's music and philosophy is the 1974 film Space is the Place, which you can watch on YouTube, if you dare. It's difficult to recommend the movie wholeheartedly, not so much because of the dated special effects, which are rather fun, but because of some truly terrible acting and an ill-conceived lurch into softcore sex comedy. But it is full of Ra's incredible music and contains some scenes that powerfully convey his message. At the beginning, Ra is shown wandering through a psychedelic garden on another planet. Alluding almost explicitly to the history of emigrationist thought, he muses that he would like to set up a colony for black people here, a planet of their own, 
without any white people. As the movie proceeds, Rob battles against a pimp called the Overseer to influence black people, like the youths he encounters at a pool hall decorated with posters of the heroes of the black power movement. This includes a number of figures we have discussed in previous episodes, such as H. Rap Brown, Huey P. Newton, and Eldridge Cleaver, as well as some figures we will get to soon enough like Angela Davis. When Sun Ra appears, one kid even looks up from his copy of Amiri Baraka's 1968 collection of essays, Black Music. Naturally, the kids react incredulously to his outfit, which has been well described as blending a spacesuit with the royal garb of the pharaoh. When they ask whether he's for real, he replies, I'm not real, I'm just like you. You don't exist in this society. If you did, your people wouldn't be seeking equal rights. You're not real. If you were, you'd have some status among the nations of the world. So we're both myths. I do not come to you as a reality. I come to you as the myth, because that's what black people are. Myths. There's a commonly used name for this sort of thing, but it wasn't coined until 1994, just after Ra's departure from this earthly realm. Afrofuturism. The term first appeared in a publication by white cultural critic, Mark Derry, which bears the clever title, Black to the Future. In it, an essay by Derry introduces three interviews he conducted with black science fiction novelist Samuel R. Delaney, that's Delaney without an E, just like Martin Delaney, and the black cultural critics Greg Tate and Tricia Rose. As Derry points out in his essay, Afrofuturism is not only a musical phenomenon. There is painting, Derry gives the example of Jean-Michel Basquiat, and there are novels by authors like Delaney and Octavia E. Butler, in addition to the science fictional tropes woven into such books as Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. There were even comic books, with characters like Luke Cage, Black Lightning, and of course the tellingly named Black Panther. Afrofuturism is, naturally, futuristic. So as Sun Ra was among the first to do, it can gesture towards a new world in which black people have equality or even wield power beyond normal reckoning. Thus another critic who has written extensively on the topic, Kojo Eshun, has commented that Afrofuturism is concerned with the possibilities for intervention within the dimension of the predictive, the projected, the proleptic, the envisioned, the virtual, the anticipatory, and the future conditional. Or as Greg Tate put it in another interview, the existential black condition in America is very futurological, it is about how do I get up out of here into some idea of a utopia or promised land or even just another state of being. It's like our version of post-human is becoming human. As that last point suggests, Afrofuturist works may be futuristic, but they are also deeply concerned with past struggles and trauma. A famous quotation from Sun Ra exemplifies this. They say that truth is stranger than fiction. Never in the history of the world has there been a case where you take a whole people and bring them into the country in the Commerce Department. Never before has that happened. It happened here. They bring them in through the Commerce Department. It was possible for aliens and angels and devils and demons to come in this country. They didn't need no passport. John Corbett has written that here, Ra takes the disempowerment of slavery and turns it into a creative situation in which the absolute identity of African Americans, as people or as angels, is unknown to anyone but African-Americans themselves. Ra observed that slavery really was like something out of a science fiction tale. People were abducted and transported to an unfamiliar place where they were reduced to the status of inhuman workers like robots. Kojo Eshun makes the point succinctly, how much more alien do you think it gets than slavery? 
We take that quotation from a 1996 movie which we would recommend without reservation, the Black British artist John Akumfra's Last Angel in History. It's a 45-minute long documentary about Afrofuturist art, especially music, which is, appropriately enough, told us the story of a researcher from the far future, called the Data Thief, sifting through clues from his distant past which is our present. As the data thief assembles his story, we are treated to a series of interviews with speakers including Eshun, Tate, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, the real astronaut Bernard Harris, and the unreal Funkonaut George Clinton. In a nice example of how Afrofuturism is not just an American phenomenon, the film highlights Lee Scratch Perry, the legendary Jamaican producer, linking his Black Ark studio with the spaceship imagery of Sun Ra's orchestra and P-Funk's mothership. Tate provides one of the most memorable of the film's lines when he explains the distinctiveness of Afrofuturism in this way. Most science fiction tales dramatically deal with how the individual is going to contend with these alienating, dislocating societies and circumstances, and that pretty much sums up the mass experience of Black people within the post-slavery 20th century world. In her interview with Derry in Black to the Future, Trisha Rose says of Sun Ra that he was concerned with creating power and positing new social myths. If you're going to imagine yourself in the future, you have to imagine where you've come from. And there is no more powerful example of that particular idea than an early novel by one of the central figures in Afrofuturist fiction, Octavia E. Butler. Later in her career, Butler would write numerous books with standard science fictional elements like aliens and genetic modification, but her 1979 novel, Kindred, features no science at all, as Butler herself pointed out, only the fantastical premise of time travel. The main character, Dana, a black woman living in 1976, the year of the bicentennial, is inexplicably transported back to the early 19th century. Here, she saves the life of a white child, Rufus, who turns out to be one of her ancestors. Dana can return to her own present only when her own life is threatened. She experiences repeated trips back and forth between the two times, always triggered by life and death experiences, once in the company of her white husband, Kevin. The story is for the most part set not in the modern day, but in the brutal, violent setting of the Maryland plantation that Rufus grows up to inherit. Dana adopts a pragmatic and intelligent approach to her dilemma, making sure to carry on her person things she may need when pulled back into the past, like a knife, a map, a history book, and even some aspirin tablets. Yet this is a flimsy defense against the pervasive racial oppression of the antebellum United States. She is beaten savagely more than once, and the threat of sexual violence looms over her and the other black women on the plantation throughout the novel. Indeed, at one crucial juncture, Dana frankly advises Alice, one of the enslaved women, to yield to Rufus's sexual desires, since her other options are even worse. The resulting child, as Dana knows, will be her own ancestor. In a sense, this plotline is a familiar one from time travel narratives. Dana realizes that she is confronting the so-called grandfather paradox. She could prevent herself from being born if she were to thwart this predatory union, cutting off her own family line before it can reach her. But that trope of science fiction here acquires a far deeper meaning. Dana finds that she cannot repair the past just as contemporary African Americans continue to experience the legacy of slavery. As one commentator on the novel has said, the true paradox she faces is the one so famously evoked by Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, the paradox of being both Black and American. Indeed, an ongoing feature of the novel is that Dana's apparent advantages as a person from one and a half centuries in the future 
do her no good at all. Her knowledge of history learned from books is abstract and ineffective. Butler once said that, the body is all we really know we have. All we really know that we have is the flesh. And this is dramatized by Dana's all too physical embodied encounter with the world of slavery. This has led another commentator to remark, the reality of the past seems to neutralize all attempts at control emanating from the 20th century, imposing the bulk of its direct unmediated experience. If anything, Dana's literacy and education put her and others at risk. Both black and white people are suspicious of her white way of talking, which makes her seem like some kind of traitor. As for the history book she brings to the past, a familiar plot point in many time travel narratives, Dana realizes that it could give away the existence of a young sojourner truth and get her killed. Revelations about the future also have no enlightening effect on the people of the past. When Rufus leaves through the book, he dismisses it as abolitionist trash. Dana replies that the book was actually written many decades after abolition, to which he responds, then why the hell are they still complaining? The reader is left to notice and be depressed by the fact that he is anticipating remarks that will be made by the racists of Dana's own time. In another sense, though, texts are a vital source of strength in Kindred, because they power Butler's own presentation of the 19th century setting. The verisimilitude of the novel is achieved thanks to Butler's study of slave narratives, like the autobiographical works of Frederick Douglass. In fact, the location, in Maryland, alludes to Douglass's place of enslavement. Something the novel has in common with Douglass's later tellings of his own story is its nuanced treatment of the complex emotional relationship between slave masters and slaves. Dana feels that she should hate Rufus, even want to kill him, yet for all her exasperation with him, with his inability to rise above the monstrousness of his historical moment, she comes to think of him as being like a younger brother. Equally subtle is Butler's handling of Dana's husband, Kevin. He seems to stand for the modern white liberal, sympathetic to the plight of black people but unable to relate to that plight. Kevin is appalled by the brutality of slavery, and when trapped in the past for several years without Dana, helps to liberate slaves via the Underground Railroad. Yet he remarks at one point that the early 19th century could be a great time to live in, and when he and Dana see black children play-acting a sale at a slave auction, he tells her she is reading too much into it. You're reading too little into it, she responds. Tellingly, he recommends, after her first experience of being pulled into history, that whether it was real or not, she should just let go of it. If this novel is about anything, it's about the impossibility of doing just that. Without giving away the novel's shock ending, it metaphorically conveys Butler's reflection on the novel, I couldn't let her come back whole. Antebellum slavery didn't leave people quite whole. A related theme that runs throughout the novel is gender, making it very surprising to learn that Butler originally planned for her time traveler to be a man. She claimed to have changed her mind only for plot reasons. A black man in this situation would have been murdered almost immediately, she reasoned, whereas a woman might be killed, but it's more likely that she would have been kept alive for work and breeding. Sexism would actually work in favor of keeping her alive. Like the women authors of the black arts movement, Butler resisted simplistic ideals of women as mothers and supportive partners to revolutionary men. Instead, Dana has complicated and fractious relationships with the black women on the plantation, especially Alice. It is mentioned twice that Dana and Alice are like two halves of the same woman, which is sometimes read as a fictionalized version of double consciousness. The novel Kindred is then another reflection on themes we have followed throughout the history of Africana philosophy. 
It is also a kind of mirror image for more straightforward Afrofuturism in that the novel connects the contemporary world to history instead of looking to worlds that are yet to come. In the words of yet another commentator on the book, there really are a lot of them, Butler narrows the divide between the past and the present and so bears the inadequacies of America's origin stories that depend on a progressive chronology as well as some strategic forgetting. If there's a philosophical difference between Butler, at least in this novel and most other cases of Afrofuturism, it lies in her dystopian instincts, which contrast sharply to the visionary utopianism of a figure like Sun Ra. She once said that, we don't really learn from history, we do tend to reproduce our errors. There are cycles in history. If this is true, then the future will not be as transformative as Ra promised. But then again, the way that people think about the future does help to shape the future as it comes. And Afrofuturism has shaped the way that people, both black and white, think about the future. And, for that matter, the present. The recent Marvel movies based on the Black Panther comics, directed and co-written by Ryan Coogler, are only the most high-profile example of how that Afrofuturism has worked its way into popular culture since the 1960s and 70s. At that time, mainstream science fiction could have been accused of trivializing race issues. The first Star Wars movie had no black characters at all, and in more utopian worlds, like the one in Star Trek, race prejudice seems to have disappeared, as if by magic. This sort of science fiction might still address racism, but obliquely and abstractly, by letting robots or space aliens stand in for black people, rather than coming to grips with the realities of black life past and present. Which is certainly not an accusation that could be thrown at Sun Ra, George Clinton, Octavia Butler, or any number of other pioneering Afrofuturists. They may have been, in the words of P-Funk, light years in time, ahead of our time, but they were also shedding light on the here and now. With this episode, we've launched something of our own, a kind of mini-series built around the contributions of musicians to Africana philosophy. In the episodes to come, we'll be using Bob Marley and Fela Kuti to introduce you to the philosophical aspects of Rastafari and post-colonial thought in Fela's country of Nigeria and beyond. So, kick back, dig, while we do it to you in your eardrums. The desired effect is what you get when you improve your knowledge of the history of Africana philosophy. <laughs>